Released on Sunday, December 4th, 2016. This Agile Life, Episode 122, The Amos Files, Part 2. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm John Sextro. Once again, we're back with another great episode of This Agile Life and the second in a series of three episodes recorded by Amos King down at Agile Dev East in Orlando, Florida. This week in the Amos Files Part 2, Amos sits down with Fadiq Khoury, Francie Van Workus, and Ryan Ripley. Ryan's a friend of the show from the Agile Humans podcast. And he's the last interview in the episode, so be sure to stick around to hear from Ryan. Without further ado, here's Amos King and Fadi Khoury. I'm here at Agile Dev East with Fadi Khoury, uh, and he gave a talk yesterday on personas and, and the, how they can change the way you develop software. But uh, I want to start with Fadi. Could you just introduce yourself, tell a little about who you are, what you do, and where you work? Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, this is Fadi Khoury. I'm uh, an agile coach. Work for uh, Ford Motor Company, and uh, mainly I try to help team uh, build better quality software and deliver value to the customer quicker. Uh, my background been in um, software development for closer to twenty years now. Uh, did a lot of different jobs uh, from networking to architect to a developer uh, played so many roles and wear so many different hats and recently maybe in the last uh, seven to eight years been playing a role of a coach uh, I pair this with my education uh, I did a PhD on uh, uh, software development uh, using agile principles and uh, uh, that's where I was introduced into agile uh, closer around 2004 and was done around 2008 and uh, been doing the coaching since so you had told me that you uh, like to help build teams and, and build quality software. Can you tell me how that looks at, there at Ford and, and how you go about building good teams? So uh, anything we do is around the people that we work with and the people we're going to service. And this is what we miss uh, as big organizations sometimes. You're not building the software for somebody uh, X to use. You're building it for a, a human, a person that can use it and make their life easier. Also, it's not machines that building the software. It's not a another software that building the software. It's the people who are building the software. So having the right people with the right attitude involved is huge to the quality of the system. If you have a team... Uh, then definitely we're talking about a, a collection of people that work together in harmony and understand each other and can definitely deliver the software that you want versus just a collection of people. And there's a huge difference between a team and a collection of people. Uh, giving a team a problem, they are... Uh, able to figure out a solution and it can be a very creative solution that you probably didn't even think about it in, uh, uh, prior to give them that problem. Uh, so enabling and empowering and trusting and uh, uh, giving the team everything they need uh, to flourish and to be able to do what they need to do or what they came to do is one of the uh, things I focus on and uh, try to get teams to come together and play as a full team. Think about anything you do in, uh, with a team uh, mindset. Uh, it changed your perspective about the software you're going to deliver and about the product you're going to be working on. So if you have a, a brand new team coming together and they've never worked together before, uh, what, is, what are some of the things you do to, to try to build trust and, and empower them? 
the first thing is an agile coach what I would do is uh, I would sit and watch and uh, you cannot come in with the predefined solution for a problem that you don't know there might not be a problem they might be uh, already working together or they already have similar personalities and interests but the main thing is having the team focused around a common set of values and having the team understand the vision and what you're trying to drive and being part of that vision and the way they're going to drive it is uh, critical for building the trust within the team. You cannot come and uh, impose uh, how you're going to do certain things and uh, what are the things that need to be uh, taken on first. These are things that you want to be able to give the team an ability to uh, have a choice in selecting some of this that can help to build that team. Uh, doing some of the team build activities mainly doesn't have to involve a, a structured way. Maybe just uh, being uh, vulnerable to each other or understanding what they go through and on a day-to-day basis. They can relate in so many different levels and creating those opportunities can help to create a better team together. Uh, that I, I don't really have much else to say about that. That sounds fantastic. It's kind of the way that, that I work, too. Um, you did mention to me that at Ford you have different levels of coaching and, and where people are, like, embedded on the team all the way up to the portfolio level. Can you run us through the different coaches that you have? With uh, any big organization, you're going to see a, a big structure because they take on big problems to solve and they try to come up with uh, uh, overall solution for uh, uh, huge systems. Uh, so you're going to see a bigger structure than you see in a smaller organization. And we see that there's a need for levels of coaching, uh, mainly because of the structure and the way we take on initiatives where you see maybe two, three hundred people on one single initiative and you see hundreds of people within a portfolio uh, that's going to try to drive some of the value streams and business enable business capabilities for the organization. So well, we found out that having level of coaches Mainly if you're looking into a team level, for example, those are the coaches that are going to sit and be embedded with the team and work with those seven plus or minus two people to help uh, drive some of the agility. We focus on both uh, process and engineering practices. So we utilize uh, a lot of the scrum practices. We utilize a lot of the XP practices. Also, we focus on some of the uh, practices when we're scaling up uh, on a team level if you're gonna have uh, or if uh, you're gonna have a team embedded with your um, uh, if you get sorry if you're gonna have a coach embedded with your team you're gonna have a coach that um, somebody just referred to as a player coach and uh, uh, that player coach gonna pair with your developers and gonna sit and write code gonna help them to start doing some uh, test driven development Development's gonna uh, help to uh, uh, run some of the mob sessions uh, and understanding some of the problems that they have and try to uh, bring everybody up to speed on the code. Uh, so we focus a lot about the quality of the code because by the end that's what we're doing as an IT professionals. We're building systems, and that's the coach that are gonna help to drive some of that. Then you have the product level coach or program project level coach whatever you want to call them these are the coaches going to drive some of the uh, scrum practices as well as uh, maybe scaled practices on the, the overall uh, program level uh, team and help them to realize uh, some of those practices how it's going to help them uh, to uh, be more efficient and more effective and focus them on building the right thing so your team level coach is helping the team to build the thing right your uh, program or project level coach helping to build the right thing by understanding and helping them to uh, realize what they are looking for 
And also, you, you might need uh, coaching on the portfolio level, which can help to drive um, uh, around the value stream and the business capabilities you're enabling and structuring your portfolio in an agile way to be able to feed uh, these big epics into uh, the program level and figure out the features that the team going to be able to drive and enable uh, for the system you're building. So we've got code quality, and then we have software quality, and you can have quality code without great software. Uh, but one of the ways that you talked about yesterday to help build great software and quality software is uh, personas. Can, can you tell us what personas are? So what interests me in persona is putting that human element back into the picture when we're building a software. We always wrote requirement and we say the user or the customer, but that doesn't give me a lot. It's very generic and it takes that human element away and it becomes more a thing versus a person. Personas help you to create a, a fictitious character and maybe give them uh, a role, a goal, uh, understand Understanding their pain points, understanding what they're looking to solve problems in their life by using the software that you're building. And by doing that, you're already bringing in their emotions, their feeling, the, the way they think, uh, the way they behave, the way they act. All of it now, it's a what I call... Uh, uh, extra uh, requirement that you never had in the past. If you kept it as generic user, your requirements is generic. But once you start putting that human person around it or that element of uh, a specific uh, person, it's it's bringing all of the other things that we as human care for. Uh, the way we feel, the, the way we're going to be able to interact with the system, the user experience, it's all around that user-centric design that we'll be able to drive and that helps a lot in changing the perspective of how we're going to build the software if you say for someone uh, can you help me they're going to help you because you're talking to them as a human you go and interact with them even if you don't know them most of the time i tried it with so many different people when i approach i ask for something they reply if I send them an email or if I send them a text, they can dismiss it. So having that human interaction is amazing to what it can be able to help us to drive. And that's why we use the personas, at least from my perspective, is to put that structure around it. So personas are, are a way to build empathy toward the user, just like we try to build empathy in a team to build a better team. So, um, I, yesterday I was, I've heard of personas before and I've used them, but something that really stood out to me that you did was you used a real picture. I had used cartoon pictures and things like that. And I, it just, it blew my mind because I was like, oh, that's so right in building empathy. Um, but why, why did you decide to use uh, a real picture of somebody? And you actually said that you use somebody that you know. It's putting that human face. It's putting the, the, their looks. Their, the, uh, the way when you look at a picture, you look at the eye, you look at the uh, expressions that they have on their face. And that by itself, it's hidden requirements to the things that you're trying to achieve. You know a lot about a person maybe just by looking at them. Sometimes we misjudge, but a lot of the times we, at least we have some idea who we're dealing with. So uh, having that face instead of a cartoon uh, was intentional as well, because you want to be able to bring as much information as possible to the uh, problem that you're trying to solve, and putting a really structure and uh, perspective around who that pro that problem is going to help. And uh, by you knowing uh, you're doing or moving this table over to that side, it's going to help X, Y, Z person, a person that you looked at and you seen and you relate to, you're automatically going to do it with more excitement and you're going to care about what you're doing versus just leaving it, uh, pushing it and moving on. So... Um can you give us a, an example of, of maybe a persona and how that affected a decision that was made? So, 
one of the things I also uh, run some uh, product owner classes and one of the personas I used actually was for someone I knew uh, it's for a 55 year old uh, single mother uh, her kids are older now I should say not single mother anymore her kids are probably 16 17 but still uh, she was looking for a loan and I used her as one of my personas uh, and, and it brought it a totally different perspective on the set of features that a lot of the people when they take the class they want to run so by using the same exercise with a persona of a 22 year old Steve who is a, a college uh, uh, grad or uh, looking for uh, a loan for his car and then talking about the persona of uh, uh, the lady who's looking for a uh, loan for her uh, refinancing her apartment or her condo it's totally different it gives a totally different perspective on what are the features we're going to be able to enable for the uh, minimum viable product we're going to deliver so uh, Steve get you to focus on a set of features that might be very uh, technical savvy around uh, maybe a mobile app and uh, with respect to a uh, car loan and the way they want to be able to get it where uh, Jessica's uh, persona tend to get you to focus more around a single mom who's looking to refinance her house and trying to get a loan to make sure she can support her family and the kids. So even by just putting that persona, you're already relating to the problem that she have and you already care about building the system, the quality that you're going to build the system in to help that specific lady solve the problems that she got and get her the money she needs to support the family. That by itself is creating a connection between you and the software that you're building and the people who are going to be uh, uh, using it or the people who will be helped by the system that you're putting out. So are there, when you're building these personas, is there a set of um, like minimal attributes that, that you give a persona? Uh, mainly, I, I always look for a high-level uh, characteristic uh, definition on the personas. I, I look for the goal, the purpose behind it, what are some of the uh, pain points that that person, what problems they are having, and how the system is going to help them to solve these problems. These are, I would say, the minimum things that I would start with. And it could grow, it could change, and it all depends on... Uh, the team that you're working with and the type of information they're looking for as well. So, um, as you're as you're building your product, uh, do you build a persona for like each feature, each story, or is this a, a broader? Like, do you have hundreds of personas, or do you have three or four, and maybe what? I'm sorry, but it's going to be also, it depends. <laughs> uh, so sometimes I use personas even to understand what's the minimal vibe product we're looking for and how we're focusing on a high level. So you're driving a what I call an agile charter for uh, initiative that you're going to drive or you're going to be able to build. And you start looking into what um, problems do you have and by building this software, who's going to be helped so we start creating a high-level personas as an overall on uh, the set of things we want to be able to do. Sometimes a team is stuck and they're looking into solving a, a feature. And then we can put a persona around who will be using those features and how we're going to be able to build those features. So it could be helping defining a set of epics and driving a set of features behind it. Or it could be just within a feature how I'm going to drive some of the, my stories and what decisions I'm going to take to achieve the acceptance criteria of that feature. So again, it depends. It's not preset. Okay, that 
makes sense. Um, so I uh, earlier when we were talking about empathy, two little ideas popped into my head, and I was just wondering if you've ever done anything like this. Was in order to build empathy for that end user, is either have the team make up stories about that persona's life, or to even maybe role play as that persona, like using the software and talking out loud as that person. So I think we do that a lot, and uh, we drive it through an empathy map. And the empathy map basically is uh, uh, bringing in the team and saying, what do you think this person is feeling? What do you think he hears? What do you think uh, uh, he's uh, looking for? Uh, what are his pains? What are his gains? And so on. So uh, that's one of the exercises we try to drive as we're building one of those personas. And it helped to uh, sit in there and, or sit in their seat or wearing their shoes basically and start relating to them even more and uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, advantages doing those empathy maps yeah that's fantastic i i think that we we've already run into the keynote a little bit um but i i want to thank you so much for being here with us today and uh is there anything that you want to share closing comments with uh the audience um no just remember you work with people and you're building solutions for bettering people's lives uh, just put that in perspective anytime you're working on a software you're not building machines and you're not working for machines alright thank you Fadi and you have a great day thank you have a great too with Francie Van Workus where we just got out of her talk about Agile Dojos. And Francie, I was just wondering if you would share a little bit about what, what is an Agile Dojo? It's great to be here, Amos. Thanks. It's a place to immerse and learn and practice. Just like a martial arts dojo or dojan, um, you can apply the same principle. There are coding dojos. Well, we talked about an agile dojo today where you're using the agile methodology, you're immersing yourself in it, you bring your work, and you deeply practice with focus, and you don't have meetings to break away for. You just have your calendar cleared for two weeks if you're a new team and just put your heads down and um, have a sensei, someone who is deeply experienced in what you're about to learn, whether it's how to do scrum or maybe it's you're an advanced scrum team and you want to learn ATDD or some other technical practice. It doesn't have to be two weeks then, but um, that person, that sensei, would be in there to help guide you, instruct you, and get you to practice. So what makes this different from a... Uh, training room. Right. That's a great question. And we had to ask ourselves that over and over again while we were building this because it was really difficult to not just make it a training room. Um, so part of that is environment. You want something that's going to be comfortable for people, but also has some cool technology or cool colors, something. And again, I, when I reached out to the Twitter community to ask what they would want in a dojo, everyone said a dog and natural light. Um, so those are some of the thoughts on that. But you definitely need uh, the space where it feels different from where you normally work. So I think I think I, I understand what a dojo is, and I kind of want to create one now. I've I've never done anything like that, um, but. I know that during your talk, you talked about a few of the, the issues that you ran into uh, in creating a dojo and how you overcame them. Will you share maybe the two hardest ones and how you how you overcame them um, with with everybody? Sure. And then I just want to follow. I just was thinking that the last answer I gave you on the rest of that question is having a great sensei or master, someone who um, for starting new teams that they can really have offer that perspective that isn't just training they have experience they can they know what works in other companies and what doesn't and they can share that and be very generous with the stories and the storytelling and but that's also the person who helps with the struggles with starting a new dojo is having a real strong sensei who's going to roll with it you need someone in there 
who's going to roll with it when you have teams that are like, why am I here? I don't like this. I have to pick up my kids or whatever. It's like, you can still go do that. And it takes that sense I understanding balance of you're here to immerse and learn, but you have a life outside of there. But some of the, the greatest um, challenges we had were in actually getting this physical space set up in uh, a corporation that's used to doing things a certain way. And so there's a lot of breaking down of dependencies when you have Agile in a, in a company, and there's a lot of breaking down dependencies when you want to build something different in in a I'm just hearing that I want a hippopotamus for Christmas song now. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, if you have a lot of struggles, you might end up singing I want a hippopotamus for Christmas over and over again to, to um, just comfort yourself. But again, it's, it's the environment that is not set up for Agile. And again, that's not necessarily bad, but that's the current state of where a lot of people are and a lot of companies. And so how do you relentlessly push without running people over um, to make this happen? And so you need a really good sponsor. And that's the other thing that um, will help this be successful. You only need one. You need just one person, though, who's going to be that light for you, who can actually help with the decisions on the money. Um, because you can be the best agilist in the world, but at the end of the day, if you're not in charge of the investment, it's not probably up to you. So I, I know that when one of the struggles you talked about was uh, just just getting paint colors that you wanted, and uh, you, you kind of had to settle on like a different color green <laughs> than you wanted. Uh, what? When do you think that it's worth fighting for something in there and worth trying to meet people where they are? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we were asking ourselves that all the time. Is this a hill we die on or not? Um, especially in a company where color is very, very limited and you're like, you're like some kind of anti... And you're just bad for wanting color. It's just really how we felt. And we put a lot of thought into the color. We looked at, you know, green being vibrant, and there's a lot of creativity and blue and orange and energy. And we really put a lot of thought into the colors that we wanted this dojo to be because it was going to have four rooms. And so we thought, well, we're going to have four different colors. And the um, facilities that we worked with, the, we've really come a long way with them from when we just started Agile and we had to say, look, you need to build collaborative space. And they're like, what? What is that? Um, we've come a long way from that. But now here we are just asking for a little bit of color and a couple of whiteboard walls to make this um, an engaging space that is, again, feel it's vibrant and energizing. And there are just, we just got lots of feedback like, well, do you know what these colors mean? Yes. Yes, we do. You know, it's just like, no, oatmeal doesn't do this. Orange and green, and, and again, we weren't looking for neon or something like that. And they're like, well, you know, this could be rather, this is pretty saturated. We don't want to do this. And so we did definitely got pushed back. And then, not only that, but like the territory that you're using, especially in some of these bigger organizations, like we have, I showed in our presentation, my presentation today, how the blue paint that we were finally able to give up on stops there's like a line on the wall where it's oatmeal and it's blue and there's there's no reason for it to stop there there's no logical reason and so thinking about how do we meet people where they're at and like this facilities example I give you it just seemed like they were pushed so far to even give us one wall of green and a little bit of blue that we felt like we would have a complete meltdown if we pushed for more and so you could just kind of feel it in the conversations that this was like a really big deal to them. So we're like, okay, we had to just acquiesce on this and, and, and let them be heroes for letting us have a green wall. Meanwhile, we're rolling our eyes because that's not even the green we picked out. Um, and so then there's more meet them where they're at is with other leaders who want who are curious and how do we say yes this is a great thing. Here's what's happening here. You can't be there with your team right now because they need to focus. Um, you can talk to them about it after. You can ask us any questions you want. And so it's really helping them just understand the intent. Because I think it's so many times we misunderstand. And that's because we don't know the intent. It's like, well, if I would have known that. And so that's what we're trying to do is educate what the intent is. So everyone can just keep calm and we say, keep calm and go to the dojo. So, um, sounds like you had 
some some trouble just getting the dojo set up, like facility issues. After it was set up and you started to bring people in, uh, were there any issues with the people who were actually using the dojo having problems? No. Um, for the most part, they loved it. And that's seems to be the way with Agile. It seems like the hardest part is not your dev team usually. It's the environments around them and in the leadership around them. So most of the time, um, teams were... Uh, Maybe they weren't sure at first, but by the time they were graduating two weeks later, they were glad they went or they could see the value in it to say, all right, maybe it wasn't, didn't need to be two weeks long that I had to learn a brand new way of working, which to me seems like a heartbeat. Um, But for the most part, they really enjoyed it. And so the other thing that happens sometimes when, when teams were, or you get one, you know, sometimes there's one person on a team that is a stronger personality and they're pushing back on something. They're pushing on the sensei and having a strong sensei to keep it balanced was really important. But then that sensei also lets it happen a little bit. And I think that as coaches, sometimes we, we need to do that to a point to let the conversations happen because the teams ended up self-correcting a lot of the stuff where it's not like just shutting someone down because they're, they're saying, I don't like this, but they're offering more perspective or more, um, more information to help with this person's objection to whatever it is. And just to be like, come on, man, let's just try it. There was a lot of that. Come on, man. Come on, dude. Let's just try it. <laughs> That's good. When, whenever you're trying to get people to just try it, do you find that uh, the dojo concept of bringing your own work with you and learning on your own work, let's say you're doing TDD learning, uh, is it easier to sell because they're working on their actual product? It's it's different for everyone. Uh, we we want them to bring their work so they can do it, right? And and so that's important. Sometimes we give examples and we have them practice something with Legos or something that isn't their work. And the idea is that uh, whether we like it or not, you have this existential overhead, if you will, all this other stuff running around in your head about the work you've already tried and what works and what doesn't, that you're, you're looking at your work today knowing all of that stuff from before. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not. And so by practicing on something that doesn't have all that overhead or all that baggage with it, you're able to just understand it purely and then apply it to work that's already kind of a mess. And so there's two ways of looking at it. And we get feedback that both people like both kinds. They're like, oh, I wish we had more real-life examples. And then other people are like, oh, I really like the Legos. So, And that's the other thing with this. You can't make everyone happy. But if you get the majority of your feedback is that you're delivering value, and that's what we were after. We Our goal was not 99% thumbs-up customer value. It was not a numeric thing. You know, it was just about getting those teams up and running. And then when we focus on technical practices, delivering that in an experiential way where you can do both understand it and practice it. That sounds fantastic. I am totally game for some Lego if we ever need to. Uh, I know that you're running out of time um, because you have somebody coming to pick you up, but I would like you to point everybody at your podcast, and I'm pretty excited to listen to it and maybe hear a little more about JoJo's in the future. So if you just want to tell them how to get a hold of your podcast or how to contact you, that would be great. Okay, thanks for letting me do that. Um, it's agilebetties.com, so it's agile and then B as in boy, E-T-T-Y-S.com. We are on that podcast having fun applying agile to daily life. So it's a lifestyle podcast applying agile. If you have perhaps a leader or someone who's struggling to get agile or they just refuse to think about it, this might be a gateway drug <laughs> for them, if you will, to understand, well, how is Agile work with um, trying to do a 5K or being a parent or organizing that junk drawer in your house, stuff like that. And so that's what we kick around and talk about. And we're practicing because we plan to open our own consulting firm. And so this was all an experiment of our own to say, can we work together and can we do this? The answer is yes. And we think we're pretty darn entertaining as well. So, because we have a lot of fun with it because this should be learning and it should be fun. That's fantastic, Francie. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, and I will definitely point one of my co-hosts, Agile Tice, Agile Tice, Jason Tice, uh, the Agile Factor to your podcast. His kids have Kanban boards and he's, he's really into using that. So thank you. 
Thank you. It was great. Zamus and I'm here at Agile Dev East in Orlando, Florida with Ryan Ripley, uh, producer of Agile with Humans. And he's giving a talk tomorrow, which I wrote down the name of and don't have it in front of me. So, yeah. Hey, Amos. How's it going? Um, you know, I, I love coming back to you, this Agile Life. This is actually one of my favorite podcasts. It's great that you guys let me come on. Uh, we had a great time last time. I think this is going to be fun, too. I'm doing a talk called The Business of Agile, Better, Faster, Cheaper, uh, taking a look at the myth of better, faster, cheaper, and helping people take a look at more of uh, the smarter, safer, sooner aspects of Agile. So it's really... Uh, it's a bait and switch, to be honest. It's one of those talks where you get them in the room and they think, yes, finally, someone's going to tell me better, faster, cheaper. And then you pull the rug out and tell them, nope, sorry, it's not going to happen, but there's a better way to do it. So that's what we're presenting. So um, can you give me a little bit of a rundown of some of the um, more detailed points, but maybe not yeah. too far in detail? No, that's all right. It's, uh, there's this myth of faster. Right, so we adopt Agile. We're gonna everything's gonna be faster, faster requirements, faster uh, delivery, faster everything. And and I try to debunk that very quickly. You know, it's a good friend of the of the Agile for Humans podcast. Uh, Tim Oninger tells a story multiple times about uh, the myth of faster and the developer who lost his work. Right, so this developer was working very hard all day, eight hour day, working on their code, and then suddenly they lost uh, everything. Crashed. Right, so at the end of the day, they forgot to they they committed the ultimate sin. They didn't commit to Git. Uh, they didn't they didn't upload their code. Their machine crashed. All they had was a printout, and so with that printout, they were able to retype their code. But how long do you think it takes to retype code after an eight hour workday? Uh, twenty hours. I, I well, imagine no, it takes a, longer than than the eight hour for me anyway. So to retype <laughs> code that you've already written, it would be a twenty to thirty minute exercise, right? If all you had is a printout of the code you wrote. So let's pretend you have the you have the printout of the code you wrote. You retype it. It's 20, 30 minutes, but it took you eight hours to initially write it. Well, that's because it's a creative endeavor. You know, it's craftsmanship. When you're that's writing true. code, you're, you're you're actually you're doing a little bit of science, a little bit of art, a little bit of philosophy. You know, it's this this creative endeavor. And so, how do you tell someone to be creative faster? I don't think you can. And it's not like we're sending developers to typing school. So we're not saying, okay, go go learn to type 200 words per minute. So we're not doing that. So what's faster? Uh, and then the answer is none of it. So what I try to, to explain to the audience through examples, through data, through story, is that really what we're after is sooner. So simplicity, the art of the work, not done, is essential. Is one of our 12 principles of the Agile Manifesto. Right. That is how we get sooner. So when we're able to look at the work that we're being asked to do, cut down, slice down to the essential, and simply deliver that, we are sooner. And that's the best that we can do. Faster is a dream, sooner is a reality. And so when it comes to better, well, what's really better, right? So if you have a house that you want to build, I want it to be a waterfall project. you know. And anyone who wants to challenge that, it's uh, at Ryan Ripley on Twitter. But I'll tell you what, when you, when you come up with a blueprint for a three-story house and in the middle of construction decide you want a two-story house, tell me how that works out with your contractor, right? You, you, have, you have limited changeability after you exactly. start. Exactly. So in that case, it's a waterfall project, and waterfall is perfect for that type of construction endeavor. But when it comes to software, thankfully, we're blessed with a domain that Agile fits wonderfully. Uh, we're able to go through and make, uh, you know, the cost of change is lower, and we're able to apply these principles and practices. Uh, but it's not better. It's fit for purpose, right? So sometimes if I'm on a project and all the requirements are known and the date is known, fixed date, fixed scope, go out and, and build it. Don't estimate. Don't do the ceremonies. Don't do the practices. Way too expensive. Just go and build this, the bloody thing. Get it done. You already know what you need to build. But when there's uncertainty, when you live in a life or when you're living in a domain of uncertainty, you have a project where you're not sure what all needs to be built, that's where Agile shines. That's where it could potentially be better, but still fit for purpose. So we've debunked better. We've debunked faster, now cheaper. I would contend that guys like you and I, Amos, we cost a ton of money. Is that fair? Yeah, don't tell anybody. Our rates are ridiculous. <laughs> Agile consultants cost a lot of money. Uh, the ceremonies and practices that we try to get teams to undertake – 
massively expensive. There's a lot of overhead to being agile. You know, sprint planning isn't cheap. The retrospectives aren't cheap. Sprint review isn't cheap. These are hours and hours and hours of meetings with 10, 15, 20 people in them. Expensive meetings, expensive ceremonies, expensive practices, but they're valuable because they help us discover the unknown, right? So if we're actually honest and looking at fit for purpose, if we have our scope and our date known, it's not cheaper to do agile. However, if there are unknowns, if we don't know the future, if we can't do these predictions, if we don't know what we don't know, and we need to do incremental discovery, incremental learning, continuous learning, then Agile is the only way to do it. And it's not going to be cheaper. However, however, we can get to a point to where we can deliver the essential and we can be sooner and we can deliver the essential, which means we're leaving things on the floor that a normal waterfall project would have delivered. And perhaps there are some savings there. But overall, we're not better, we're not faster, we're not cheaper, but we are smarter, we're safer, and we're sooner. So that, that's fantastic. But you, you talked about if you know these things up front, have you ever had experience with any project software-wise that knew enough up front to, to be done in Waterfall? So I think there are projects where they've pretended to understand the whole domain completely, understand it to know exactly what they needed. I think the closest could be embedded device. Right, So if you're doing some kind of embedded device uh, project, perhaps that's where that works. But otherwise, you're right. It's a, it's a very good point. I've never seen it where we knew 100% of what we were trying to do. So perhaps those projects are out there. In my experience, Agile has been a great fit uh, for the majority of the projects that have come across you know, my vision and my purview. So um, the, the better, faster, cheaper um, also seems like some of these things that are misnomers or um, aren't quite readily seen up front, I think that over the course of time, in my experience, has shown that um, all the extra work that you do whenever there's uncertainty into a project, all the agile practices lead to long-term faster because you don't have backpedaling and things like that. Is, is that something that you address there? Do you say... Yeah, we can split hairs and we can count the number of hairs on the on a gnat's face and we can get into all of those minutiae. But I, we're saying the same things, right? So when you decide to adopt Agile practices, you're making a long-term investment. So you're, you're correct. There's definitely a possibility that, that by doing these things, you could end up delivering things sooner, longer term. But as far as faster, you know, I want to get to the root of that. You know, Everyone wants 100% capacity, 100% speed. When you think about any other domain, that always leads to disaster. You know, in the talk, I go into a NASCAR example where, yeah, let's do 100% speed full out. Well, then you end up into a wall because you missed your left turn, right? right. And so I, I just I think there there is an argument for slack. There's an argument for not being, you know, as fast as you can possibly possibly go, especially in a creative endeavor. So I think it's just the wrong target. So while it could be feasibly you know, possible to, to maximize speed and all those things, let's get away from that. It's a bad target. Let's focus on for ultimately delivering valuable software that delights our customer. But from a secondary level, let's, let's figure out how to be sooner. How do we cut away the things that aren't essential to our product? How do we, you know, if you look at Microsoft Word, who needed Clippy? <laughs> But someone spent time developing Clippy, and I hate Clippy. Clippy's a jerk. He <laughs> he has bad advice. He doesn't make my life better. He just uh, pops up on the screen and says absurd things. So, but a developer spent time, effort, energy, creative, uh, creative energy on making Clippy. It added nothing to the product. So let's get that. Let's get Clippy out of our products. Let's get the non-essential out. Let's deliver sooner and evaluate from there. So do you have any um, broad tips outside of delivering sooner to help people eliminate uh, the, the cruft, sort of say? So I, I think what that comes down to is not developing products or not evaluating products in a vacuum. So let's, let's have the customer constantly looking at prototypes and paper models and whiteboards and really looking at how they're going to use this product. And let's get to as close to them as possible. Let's see that, oh, wait, they're really interested in these three buttons, these five areas, this other stuff that we thought would be awesome, they just don't need. Cut it. You have to, 
you know, if you look at other other industries, what I find useful, you know, as a scrum master and agile coach, you know, marriage counseling books are immensely useful <laughs> because uh, every problem we have in the agile community is a is a people problem. Right, so you need to learn how to to negotiate conflict and work with people. Well, when it comes to product, I look at script writing. I'm very fascinated by a lot of the script writing books where they especially say you have to be willing to kill your darlings. You know, your favorite character has to like Game of Thrones. They kill everybody. You know, Ned Stark. Here's a spoiler alert: if you're not up on on Game of Thrones, <laughs> Ned Stark, the greatest character. Uh, on an HBO series in a long time, my favorite character, dead at the end of season one. But he needed to go. They had to kill the darling off to move the story along. Well, the same with software. There's a, a feature, some kind of toggle, something that a product owner may be in love with, but the customer just hates. Kill it. Move on. Deliver that that uh, that product that, that meets the requirements and nothing more. And then gather that feedback and see what's next. If you can get to that level, uh, that sense of nirvana and product creation, I think you're far better off. So um, what what stakeholders and roles do you see being involved with watching what the customer is doing? Does that go all the way down to the developer level? Is it project manager? Is it everybody? How does this? I'm most interested in the person who's going to spend cash for what you're building. That's the person that I want in the room, who I want to observe, you know, using the paper models, using these, these low-tech, low-fi uh, methods to, to test out UI, UX, uh, and any other acronym that you can think of, right? I, I want the person who's going to put cash on the table, uh, testing out every single assumption that I've made about this product, and then work backwards from there. Of course, you need, in a Scrum setting, you want the product owner aligned with the customer. You want the customer aligned with what we're going to build. I think that's essential. If you're in a, a Kanban, I'm sorry, Kanban. Craig uh, says Kanban sometimes. Can, it's well, so, <laughs> we, so we're from the Midwest, right? You're St. Louis. I'm Indiana. I say Kanban. Kanban? Kanban. How's your Kanban going? <laughs> yeah, it's, so however you say it, regardless of methodology, I'm most interested in getting closest to the person who's actually going to put cash on the table and then work backwards from there. Sounds good. Um if there's one thing from your talk tomorrow that you hope that people take away, one important detail, what would it be? So a large part of the talk, you know, when you start trying to measure better, you get into the metrics discussion. And I, I eviscerate velocity. I hate story point estimation. I think velocity is a sham. I think that if you're basing multi-million dollar decisions on story points, I... You're, in, you're, you're adding risk to your enterprise, your organization, and your project. I want to get people back to the idea of counting stories, looking at throughput, using cumulative flow diagrams, see where your bottlenecks are, see how you can improve your systems of work uh, in order to, to improve the work that your teams do. Uh, velocity is a, a capacity metric. It's a worthless metric. You know, Ron Jeffries and others who were involved in the initial adoption creation um, and the, the discussion around velocity have all come out and said, uh, if we created this, we're sorry, it was a bad idea, right? So it, when you even have, like, the grandfather of Agile coming out and saying, yeah, don't do this, I tend to listen. I think everyone else should, too. Uh, let's drop this dated concept. Count your stories. Look at throughput. Look at cycle time. You know, adopt lean. These are not new ideas. These are very old ideas. But let's get back to lean thinking, inspect and adapt, and stop worrying about you know, score, story point and spreadsheet gymnastics and, oh, hey, I got this much of the story done in this sprint, but it bled over to the next sprint. So do I get partial credit, partial points? Let's knock all that off. You know, either the story's done, the card moves to done, or it doesn't. And, and let's go from there. Just count it up, count the stories, uh, look for the bottlenecks, and, and I think you'll be much better off. Count whatever they show up and done. Exactly. So, so what I'm gathering is... Ryan Ripley, Ron Jeffries, no estimate hashtag. Hashtag no those. estimates, <laughs> no estimates for life. And and uh, I think that tonight you you've said um, men are from Mars, softwares from Venus. That's right. That's um, right. So I, I think that uh, the, those books are great. I, most of the books I end up with, uh, even though I do a lot of development more than coaching, is um, both the. Uh, Psychology books and leadership books. Right. The, those are the, the two biggest things. And I think we, we touched, on, touched on 
trust a little bit in, in the conversation. Sure. Here. And I, I think in order to get to those practices, um, it, it feels like you got to have a lot of trust, but sometimes you need to take a step back. Well, I, I think it's important, you know, to, to talk about trust in a very realistic way. You know, people are like trust, but verify it. But to me, that's, um, you can to me, to me that, trust, trust, but verify is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really like trust, but verify, but don't trust. And, and I don't buy into that at all. Um, you either trust or you don't trust is given, uh, from my point of view until there's a reason not to. But at the same time, a good friend of the agile for humans podcast, Tim Oninger likes to say over and over that trust is a spectrum of spectrums. Right. So I have an overall trust level that I'm willing to accept, but my wife gets trust in different areas than you do. So, Amos, I trust you to to publish this podcast, to not make me look bad, to to give me the benefit of the doubt, to make sure that this isn't spun in some some crazy way and that it's just a a good, fun interview that we both had. Well, lucky for you, I do no editing. And neither does John. We I, just put it out. <laughs> I love it. So that's perfect. So I trust you guys implicitly to do a great job with this podcast. But at the same time, there are things that I trust my wife with that I don't trust you guys with. And it's just, it's a spectrum of spectrums and it's transactional. So as we have more interactions, I trust you with more things. Now, if I break that trust or if you break that trust, we go way back, we go way down and the transactions start again. And so when we talk about trust, we talk about agile and all those things, it's important to remember. Remember, it's spectrums of spectrums, and it's transactional. And if you can keep that in your mind, I think it, that will lead to better ways to build trust uh, between management, between stakeholders, between teams, between individuals, between scrum masters, product owners. It all gets better when you have that kind of understanding around it. Well, I, I for one, am pretty excited to go to your talk tomorrow. Uh, this this actually made me even more excited about it. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would leave out of here thinking, oh, now I've got it all. I need to move on. Sure. But uh, I, I really don't. I feel like I, I need to make sure that I'm in there um, and maybe even add a little to this at cool. the end of the day. Is there anything else that you want to leave with listeners before we head out? No, you know what? I really, um, I'm really appreciative to the people at Techwell. They put on a great show uh, here in Orlando, and then I know in June the next uh, Techwell conference, the, uh, the 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 Better Software Conference West out in Las Vegas. <clears throat> this is a, it's a top notch organization. They treat speakers very well. Um, I've had a great time talking to you, Amos, as part of uh, that experience, and and just a wonderful overall experience with the, the conference. I hope as many This Agile Life and Agile for Humans listeners make it out to the next one. Love saying hello to all the listeners. Had, met a lot of great listeners out here this week. Hope to see everybody in Vegas next time and just can't thank Techwell uh, enough for having me as a speaker and can't thank uh, you, know, you and John and, and Tice and the rest of the This Agile Life crew for having me on as a guest on your podcast. That's pretty awesome. Sorry I missed it the first time. Yeah. Uh, family stuff. It happens. No, no problem. Hey, <laughs> I'm glad we caught up here, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference. It was nice to meet you, and I look forward to hearing you talk tomorrow. All right, thanks. thanks. Bye. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.